We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 12 again. Last week, we looked at this uh, great endurance race of the Christian life, the call to persevere after Christ. And we're going to look at that again. Um, we're going to read the first two verses of chapter 12. And then we're going to go to the next, pass- the next portion in chapter 12. And last week, we were kind of looking at this great enemy of pain, saying, look, there's a real danger that you experience pain. And in that pain, you will pull back from Christ, that you will uh, grow weary in that pain. And so we need to see that actually the Father is disciplining us. He's shaping us. He's using the pain and the challenges in our lives to make us more like his son. That's what we looked at last week. And this week, we're looking at another kind of great challenge in that, in that perseverance race. This week, we're going to look at the challenge of sin, the challenge of sin. The, actually, I've entitled today's message, The Danger of Sin, The Danger of Sin. We're going to hear a warning. So why don't you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 to 2 and then 7 to 2, uh, sorry, first, and then 12 to 17. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then verse 12. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." So today we are, we are hearing something of a warning, something of a, almost like a slap in the face. You know when you've got someone doing something really stupid and you see in the films, they kind of slap and say, snap out of it. There's a little bit of that in this passage, a little bit of a, a kind of a warning. And it's, what he's saying really is, don't play with this. Don't play with sin. Don't just kind of uh, flirt with it and think that it's, it's inconsequential. Actually, the, that sin is the great enemy of your a wholehearted pursuit of Christ, that this is going to stop, it's going to entangle itself in you and, and pull you away, actually has the potential to destroy you, to pull you out of the race completely. What he's saying is there's a danger that you've forgotten the incompatibility of, of sin with running this race. You cannot say you're running this race and then immerse yourself in sin. And the very perseverance that the, the writer of Hebrews is calling us to in this endurance race is a perseverance in the battle against sin. Instead, it's a an, 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 uh, great urge to pursue Christ-likeness. And in this, when we look at this passage, I think the first question we have to ask ourselves is, have you forgotten the great struggle of the Christian life? This word uh, race, when in verse one, when he says the race set before you, is, I mentioned this before, is, is the word agon. And that word agon also kind of speaks of, of conflict or struggle or even of wrestle. 
And what it's saying is there is a great conflict to the heart of the Christian life, but you're not a kind of uh, a race competitor running against others trying to be the best. No, you are the, the race, the conflict in your life is the conflict against sin. That's why we talk about the three great enemies of the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The reason why the world is an enemy of the Christian, so to speak, is because through the world comes temptation. The reason why the flesh, the desires in us that are contrary to Christ, the reason why they're a problem is because those desires have the danger of pulling us into sin and away from Christ. And the reason why the devil is the enemy is because he wants to destroy you. He wants to pull you away from Christ and to bring dishonor and uh, rebellion towards Christ. In Genesis chapter 4, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over you. Saying, look, see the potential for sin and how it might rub you away, pull you away from Christ. And yet, on the other hand, we also see in this passage the great desire that God has for you. That you might share in his holiness. That he's rescued from you from sin and that he's made you a son of the living God. And so actually holiness is your destiny to become like Christ. And so what we have is a kind of the crucible of the Christian life. is a battle against the flesh, the world and the devil that will pull you towards sin. And yet God who desires that you might become holy like Christ. That is the great struggle of the Christian life. That's the great drama. You see in verse 4 he says, In your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the shedding of blood. Think about that, what he's saying. The, sh- the struggle against sin, he's like drawing a reference, almost like it's like hand-to-hand combat, almost like wrestling. It's saying, look, it's going to be really difficult sometimes. And the danger is, as we look at this passage, that you've forgotten that struggle, that you're content to look like everybody else, that you tolerate the presence of sin in your life. And in doing so, you just, you, you're almost rendered useless to, in the Christian life. Of course, there's also another danger in this passage that the, the struggle against sin is a lot more subtle than we realize. There's a danger to which we think of sin in terms of the big ticket items, sexual immorality, lying. Actually, we forget that so much of sin, in fact, all sin begins in the heart. It's an attitude. I was reading in Mark 7 this morning, this is a, a list of sins that Jesus lists. And what struck me immediately was many of these are, are heart attitudes, are things that actually you could have and No one else around you would even necessarily know that was the case. Or you may not even see that until it's confronted to you. Think about pride, how that inflated sense of ego, how it just bubbles up inside us, how it's almost welcomed in our culture. And the point you may not even realize how much you've been consumed with the desire to glorify your own name rather than to glorify the name of the living God. Or, or covetousness, the desire that you, that you start to, to, to desire what someone else has, the blessings they have or the gifts they have. And so you start to be consumed with a kind of covetousness. Again, no one else might see it, but actually it's dangerous. It's really dangerous for your soul. Think about envy, that, that brooding sense of, of desire, uh, of kind of jealousy towards someone else. Maybe they're more gifted than you. Maybe they have something that you want and how that can easily consume you. And no one else around you would even know. So you've got to see that this battle against sin is more subtle than we realize. And I think this, this call to, to action, so to speak, the call, uh, this warning, this reminder is really pertinent in this moment because I think the battle against sin is all the more challenging at this moment. We're experiencing a moment of collective pain. And what do we do when we're, we're in pain? We seek comfort. I don't know if you saw in the news that uh, the British people are buying more custard and more gravy right now. There's no surprise because they're looking to these things for comfort. You have to another, get a British person to explain that to you if that doesn't make any sense to you. But what I'm saying is when we experience pain, when we experience loneliness, when we experience a lack of joy, we look for comfort. And the problem is that sin whispers to you. It says, I, I have false comfort for you. It doesn't say, I have false comfort for you. It whispers comfort to you. But of course, that comfort is false. 
about that moment, that invitation to indulge yourself, that invitation to alcohol, that sexual temptation, whatever it is, it says you'll feel better. You'll numb the pain, so to speak. So we have the problem of pain. We also have the problem of self-pity. I talked about this last week, how it's so easy when we're going through pain to justify little indiscretions to ourselves on the basis that we're going through suffering. You say, what's the harm? This will make me feel better. God understands. He would understand this because I'm going through uh, these struggles. And and the writer of Hebrews has a really challenging response to that, 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 the way we might then play with sin. He says, this is far more dangerous than you realize. This will trip you up. This will pull you away, stop you running the race. Or in the most extreme case, it will destroy you. It will take you out of the race completely. Second reason I think this is relevant is because we have a struggle with passivity right now. It's cold, it's dark, it's uh, very easy to kind of want to just hibernate for the next few months and, and just kind of hide under the duvet and wait till all of this is over. And, we, and so our lives are kind of full of work or binging TV. And, and of course, the, the great danger in all of that is a kind of spiritual sloth, a physical passivity which breeds a kind of spiritual passivity. We're no longer hungry for God. We kind of feel, we somehow recognise and sense the unhealthiness of which our kind of rhythms are. But we almost don't have the energy to even overcome that, that, that unhealthiness. So we've been feeding ourselves on a diet of junk food. So we're kind of a little bit satiated, but actually we can't even bring ourselves to really hunger after God. And again, the, the writer of Hebrews has got a real clarion call to action. This is the very opposite of the kind of passivity that we might find ourselves bound up in. It's, you've got to hear the action in this, in, in this passage. He says, verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and holiness. Strive, pursue, run the race. There's a call to action here. Strengthen your weak knees. Saying, don't passively drift. Don't stop running the race. Don't give up the struggle against sin. No, instead, keep pursuing holiness even as that this time and the third challenge i think this why this is relevant is because we experience isolation we are separated separated from each other many of us are not seeing each other uh, anything like as regular as we normally do and there's two problems with that one is that we 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 use the fact that people are not seeing us to kind of justify sin to ourselves say well nobody's really looking no one will know no one's going to see that i'm in a kind of bit of a messy situation and so we stop spending time with God and we justify it to ourselves. Well, I'll get back to it after after this season is over when we re- things return to normal. So we, there's a kind of danger that in the isolation we experience, we we justify sin. The second thing is, I think we just experience loneliness. And with that comes insecurities, come um, the sense of being rejected from others. Uh, and, and that problem is that that's kind of a landing strip for sin, that actually we turn to all sorts of false sources of love, things that might tell us they love us when we are feeling lonely and isolated and into that great challenge of isolation the book of the word from the book of hebrews this this morning is so pertinent because it's actually a call to communal holiness it's not just an individual call to holiness he's saying you have responsibility for each other and so it's a kind of great challenge to the isolation to to run in exactly the opposite direction to become a holy community so let's just take each of these in turn then first of all the danger of sin don't forget the danger of sin The great danger is that you tolerate sin in your life, that you play with it, that you flirt with it, that you forget that this will injure you and has the potential to destroy you. In verse 15, it talks about a root of bitterness growing up. And sometimes people think of that somehow, some kind of relational bitterness. It's not really talking about that. In fact, it's a reference to Deuteronomy 29, uh, when it describes one who says to himself, I should be safe even though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Someone who's made peace with their sin, who's 
essentially we're all self-justifying creatures. We, we cannot live with the tension of walking in sin and knowing that we want to follow Christ. And so what happens is we come up with all sorts of reasons to justify it to ourselves, to justify little mini compromises. Everyone does it. I can't control it. There's, there's grace for this. And, and there is grace, no question. But what he's saying is, don't you realise how dangerous this is? See how easily it entangles. In verse 1 it says, it clings so closely. It promises comfort, but it ends up controlling you. It's, that word entangles or, or clinging closely, it's like a picture of how a kind of ivy might wrap itself around you and bind you up and, and stop you in the pursuit, the race that this has called you to. I think about the bitterness, how you might have a little mini complaint and you might start to just to kind of return to that complaint against someone, that frustration you're feeling against them. And you just return to it thinking that's harmless. I'm, I'm indulging my sense of, of righteousness by remembering what they've done against me. You start meditating on it. But that little nagging frustration then kind of blooms into full bitterness in your life. And, and, you, end, and you can think about nothing else. and You end up being controlled by that sense of frustration or anger or bitterness towards someone else. You've all met people who, feel, who look controlled by that. I think about pornography. I think about how we might just say, oh, it's just a little peek. It doesn't, doesn't hurt anybody. It'll just be a moment to give myself a little pick-me-up. And of course, that's never how it ends. It always just pulls you in and sucks you in until you feel like a dog returning to your vomit, that you cannot, um, you cannot stop. You feel controlled by that sin. Think about lies, how you might just start saying a few little white lies, just, to, just, kind of just what everybody else does. And then over time, it just kind of gets sucked in and you just kind of get numb to the wrongness of what you're doing. And you just, it becomes a pattern in your life until you end up just becoming kind of deception. It becomes a norm for you. And the reason why I think this is, has a controlling power is because sin never satisfies. It's a universal principle that you, you drink from it. The book of Jeremiah describes about drinking from, from broken cisterns. It's kind of talking about how sin, in a sense, is like drinking salty water, expecting your thirst to be satisfied. But, and it might give you a momentary illusion of satisfaction, a moment of satisfaction, but then you're thirsty again. So you go back for more, for more. And there's a law of diminishing returns that you keep pursuing this to get satisfaction. And you need to do more, more intense experiences until you still recognize the emptiness of this. So we get into a pattern, we get controlled by it. We think this will help us and will comfort us, but rather it does the opposite. It entangles itself in us and it feels like it controls us. But you've got to see also that this undermines the great race that you're on, the great pursuit of Christ that this uh, writer has set before us. Talk about sin clinging so closely. What you have to remember is this picture of Olympic, Olympian athletes in ancient Greece. They, they would run, they'd be running naked, right? That was kind of the standard way that they would do their Olympic, uh, Olympic sport. And what it's saying is they want to be running unencumbered. And the great danger is that sin will kind of encumber you, will, will, will slow you down on this race at the very least. Think about the way that sin diminishes your assurance, how it undermines the sense sense that you are God's child, how it undermines the conviction that you have that you are loved by God, and how how sometimes it stops you from then enjoying the presence of God, stops you from coming into God's presence because you're just beating yourself up and saying, well, of course I can't come into the presence of God now. How it undermines your Christian courage, how God is calling us to be a bold people, willing to proclaim him in all sorts of places which feel uncomfortable. And I think so often when we struggle with sin, we just feel... Like almost like, well, I can't be bold. I can't be, I can't be known for being a, a follower of Christ when, I, when I'm dealing with this kind of sin. So it undermines our courage and how it just wearies us, how it stops us because we're just dealing with the fight towards sin. It just stops us from a kind of wholehearted pursuit of Christ. What I want to say to you is, brothers and sisters, Christ wants you to run free. He wants you to be that Olympic athlete, able to run unencumbered by the weight and by the sin that so easily clings to you. 
But there's an even more sobering reality here in this passage which says, actually, sin won't just entangle itself into you. Ultimately, it has the potential to destroy you. The, for most of us, in the present danger is just that sin will cause us to stumble. But for some, the problem is not just sin, but apostasy, that you will walk away from Christ because of this sin. Verse 13, it talks about one who might veer off God's straight path and, go and, and, and be rendered um, that which is lame just find the verse uh, so that which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed he's saying keep running the straight path because if you don't run on the straight path it will be put out of joint dislocated you've got a picture of a runner almost um with a, a kind of a dislocated bone such they can't even run anymore they, they're, they're on the ground in, in agony think about in verse 15 it says see to it that no that that um see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of god he's talking about someone who might um, be so consumed by the battle against sin that eventually they just give up. They give up fighting. They just drift away from Christ. They just say, I just can't give up. I can't deny these desires anymore. I'm just going just gonna to go and deal with sin. And how, how tragic that is when you see that. Or someone who says, I feel utterly defeated by this battle. They feel condemned and they kind of just feel a little kind of just great sadness, a kind of pit of, of um, self-pity and just, and just uh, want to just give up. Temptation feels too strong. They feel condemned, and so they withdraw from the church. And he's saying, don't trifle with sin. That, that, that sin has the potential to destroy you. Last week, we talked about how we, we, we pull back from pain. When you, if you grab a uh, pan of boiling water, the first thing you might do is just drop it because it, it, it stings your hand. The great danger with sin is that it is going to cause you pain, but you don't realise that, and so you're holding on to it, and actually you're burning your hands without even realising it. There's another point this passage makes, which is the great foolishness of sin. It says, when you, every time you sin, you're making an awful trade-off. In verse uh, 16 and 17, it describes Esau. And it's a really sobering warning from history. This man was kind of unholy, describes him as, as, uh, as unholy, uh, but that would really mean godless, uh, kind of a man really consumed by base desires. A Jewish uh, tradition talked about how um, is a man who is sexually immoral. And really what you've got to see is the foolishness of this moment that it's talking about. It's a moment where Esau, uh, this man who's just kind of driven by base desires, uh, trades his birthright, trades the the great uh, privilege of of receiving the inheritance from his father for a bowl of soup. And it's a picture of what happens when you give in to sin, that you are a son of the living God. See this all the way through this passage. If it it is uh, verse seven, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. It's a reminder of your sonship. He's saying, don't you realise your great birthright? Don't you realise who you are? And then when you give in to sin, you're like one who just goes and takes a bowl of soup to give up that birthright temporarily, to kind of to renounce who you are and the identity that you have as a holy son of God and to just satiate that temporary desire. It's the very opposite of Moses, who in chapter 11 talks about being choosing to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's all about how Moses grew up in, in the uh, Pharaoh's house, would have had all, every sort of comfort, but he says, no, he, he renounce those fleeting pleasures to be faithful to the mission that God's called him to to be mistreated with the people of God saying look in a sense he made the right trade-off he recognized these these are just fleeting pleasures and instead he looked it goes on uh, to talk about one who who looked to the rewards looked to his eternal rewards instead of these fleeting pleasures this is true for someone who, who gives up their salvation, who, who says, I can't follow Jesus anymore. I just had these desires to, which are too strong. It's like giving up their salvation for a bowl of soup. But it's even true for those of you who, who just get, when you give in to sin, you're, you're giving up something so privileged, saying you have the great privilege of sonship. You have a birthright. Don't give it up for some dog food, uh, however ap- appealing it might look. And so really the great challenge in this passage is don't 
stop fighting sin. Don't tolerate it. My son, whenever I tell him to not do something, sometimes I just say a little more, a little more X, a little more Y. He's a great negotiator. It's wonderful to see. But and, and uh, I mostly want to just celebrate his negotiation skills. But I have to remember at that point, no, actually, don't, I've got to draw this boundary hard. And that's the same you've got to. It's so easy to want to just a little bit more to tolerate it. But actually saying, no, renounce this. And 1 John 3 says, whoever makes a practice of sin is... The practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He's saying it's totally incompatible with your identity in Christ, with who you are, to continue to tolerate the presence of sin in your life. Now, of course, this may feel disheartening. You've also got to remember, in one sense, I think, perhaps a more realistic goal in a way is, is not the absence of sin but is the continuing battle against sin uh, sam albury a writer a great teacher said this the sign that the spirit is powerfully at work in you is not that there's no battle with sin but a huge battle with sin success in the fight against sin is not only the absence of sin actually i think the, the primary thing that i'm calling you to is an ongoing battle against sin The way to be successful in this battle, so to speak, is to endure, not to give up this battle. As long as you're fighting sin in your life, as long as you're repenting of it, as long as you're renouncing it, as long as you're coming into the presence of God, receiving his grace and coming back to him. That, I think, is the goal for the Christian life. The only way to lose this battle is to give up, is to stop fighting sin. The great uh, faith that God is calling you to is an enduring faith that continues to wrestle with sin to your dying day. Second of all, then. There's a challenge against sin. Second of all, then, is a call to strive for holiness. So easy to become passive. It's our default in our culture. And yet the vision that he draws of the Christian community here is one who actively pursues holiness, who are engaging their will, their mind, their desires, every part of themselves striving towards this great goal, working hard to become more like Christ. This is the great endurance race of the Christian life, to, to, to struggle, to persevere towards holiness. You can see this instruction, it rings out through the passage, strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the great danger, of course, is that we lack any sense of holy ambition, any desire for holiness. There's an absence there. Very few of us are, are ambitious for holiness, have set our minds on that goal. Maybe we're ambitious for our careers or uh, our relationships. You know, I want to get married by a certain time. Or, also, or maybe I want to live in this country, in this country. Or I want to achieve, have this kind of professional accomplishment. Those things aren't necessarily wrong. But the danger is that we focus on the what of our lives rather than the how, rather than the work that God wants to do in each one of us, in our characters. We are the impact generation who long for a kind of great impact in the world. That's kind of one of the millennial markers, I think. And because we look to achievements or outcomes and and kind of as as a way of almost validating our existence. We have lofty goal, lofty ambitions, lofty goals to change the world Again, it's not wrong to want to change the world for Christ and to be about his business. I think it's wonderful. But yet we may have missed the great work that God wants to do in each of us. That perhaps this is the primary and fundamental work that God wants to do to change us. There's a few other reasons for our lack of appetite, ambition for holiness. First is I think we feel no sense of need for holiness. We compare ourselves with the world and actually probably we feel quite different for the people around us, our work colleagues. And so maybe even we feel a sense of superiority. And of course, the, because the problem is, is that we've been looking to the wrong benchmark. You see, you've had to fail to see there's something of the scale of the work that God wants to do in your life to make you holy. God wants us to share in his holiness. You see that in verse, uh, verse 10, that we 
for they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness, to become like him. And when we look at Christ and we see his great, glorious beauty, surely if we consider Christ the benchmark of holiness as the very embodiment of what holiness is, then we recognise the great gulf and the great work that God must do in our lives as we see his willingness to lay down his life, how he's so, his whole posture of willingness to sacrifice himself, his, his loving kindness, his great love that is never dented, his, his patience with the disciples, his, his humility, the great Lord of the universe coming down and suffering in such a way. When we see those characteristics, we feel the gulf. We think God has much more to do in us to make us resemble Christ. I think secondly, our vision of holiness is too small. We think of the idea of holiness as the kind of absence of sin. We fail to be enthralled by this great transformation project of our lives. We've forgotten that holiness is beautiful because Christ is beautiful. And Christ wants to make beautiful brothers and sisters, so to speak, like him. That we have a family resemblance with the Father. Shouldn't that excite us? Shouldn't that enthrall us that God wants to put his mark and to shape us to look like him? Consider the beauty of Christ. Consider his courage, his willingness to walk through great suffering, his nobility of character. that He's never willing to lower himself or base himself or, or compromise in terms of his ethics. His integrity, his honesty and reality about who he is, even to the great cost of losing his life. When you see Christ's beauty, it is a great privilege that he wants us to share in his holiness, to become like the Son. What a wonderful goal. What a wonderful goal for our whole lives. I think the other reason we we struggle with this ambition is because our approach to holiness is too passive. We assume holiness is something that happens to us. And there is an element to that which is true. In John 15, it says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. There is a sense to which if you try to become holy without Christ, without abiding in him, without depending on him, yes, it's completely pointless and useless. So you're right to, to know that there is a sense to which God is actively at work in us. And yet the idea of becoming holy is actually more active than many of us realize. Um... Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians, is describing this same race that the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews describes. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. In another translation, I beat my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Is there anything but passive? We see it in this passage as well. Think of any of you done physical exercise. That's not a passive activity. It requires a forward momentum and a sense of urgency, a sense of a willingness to put your will into that effort. And so in the same way, the will to holiness, the call to holiness, is one that requires an active investment. So strive for holiness. But it's not like some kind... I don't think the striving for holiness is just about kind of summoning up some kind of uh, brute force and grit within you. Actually, I think there's surprising answer to how we become holy. Let me give you a couple of them. First of all, the fight for joy. The great irony, the greatest weapon against sin and towards Christ-likeness, towards holiness, is joy in Christ. The great danger is you just write in your life a long list of don'ts and those don'ts become kind of kind of legalism or uh, almost one, one writer puts them as pea shooter regulations and that don't change the heart. The great danger is that you see that the battle for holiness begins in the heart, begins with your desires. And really the antidote, the great, um, the number one weapon, if I can put it like that, in the battle for holiness is to pursue joy in Christ. The gratitude that, 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 that Pete was modelling for us a, a moment ago. 
See, I look back to this, this writer in the book of Hebrews a number of times references uh, these Christians as like the Israelites in the desert. How they, and the, what was the great problem with the Israelites when they turned to idols? What caused that is they became bitter with God. They became angry and frustrated with him. Why are we in the desert gauging this manner? They're, they're grumpy and it's their grumpiness and their kind of sense of, of, of frustration and perhaps bitterness towards God that leads them away from, leads them to worship idols. That's why in Hebrews 3 it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So the daily fight to become like Christ means pursuing joy in Christ every day. George Muller, uh, the great, um, among other things, had an orphanage in Bristol. Uh, You can Google him, find out more. He said this, "The the first great and primary business which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first great and primary business which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. When he wakes up, when he's he's thinking about his day ahead, he's not thinking about what do I need to do, what are my achievements? No, the first order of business is the state of his heart, of his desires, of his satisfaction and contentment in the living God. And how often we start the day without that sense of joy and gratitude, and as a result, things go downhill from there. There's a fight for joy every day to remind ourselves of the promises, to come and abide with Christ, to spend time in his presence, to have his spirit transforming your heart, that you might remember his goodness to you and that you might be filled with a sense of tangible joy and love for him. And it is that joy, that love, that sense that um, I am, I, I am I'm rich indeed in Christ of his goodness to you. That will be the number one driver towards holiness and against sin. Because, of course, sin is about drinking muddy puddles instead of coming to the great fountain of living water. The great fountain that never runs dry, that continues to sustain you and offers you that water that will transform your soul every day. So don't go after running muddy puddles. Instead, seek joy, seek that living water because we know his love is better than life. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, remember who you are. Remember the privilege of holiness. See, we, all, we conform our behaviour to who we remember who we are, who, who we think we are, so to speak. Our identity. And we, the problem is that we so often think of ourselves through our professional lens, of what we achieve, our work, our family lens, who, what our role is in, the, in a family, if we're in a family, uh, or our characteristics. We forget that our primary identity is as the holy people of God. And the Bible says that is who you are because of what Christ has done on the cross. You have become the holy people of God. That is who you are. And so therefore live like it. Become who you are. Live who you are. So don't give up the fight to holiness, even though you feel, maybe feel defeated. Remember, his mercies are new every morning. You can come and receive his grace again. But then finally, I want to remind you that this is a call to communal holiness to become a community of holiness. This is a deeply communal instruction, not some individual call, but to become a kind of holy army. So you can see all the way through this passage, the communal commands. Strive to live at peace with everyone. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Not make sure that you don't fail to obtain the grace of God. No, make sure that others don't fail to receive the grace of God. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. These are instructions, in a sense, where you're not just looking at your own life saying, am I striving for holiness? Am I doing battle with sin? No, you're saying, see to it that that's true of of your family, of your community, of the people you are with. What you need to imagine for a moment, this great race that we're running, where Christ is ahead of us, he's run before us, we have our eyes fixed on him, we've seen his endurance, we've seen his holiness, that he is the only obedient one who never sinned. We look to him, we're running to him, and yet... Every now and again, we look to the side and we see our brothers and sisters running with us. 
that we are running as one great holy army. And so it means when we see a brother or sister running off to the side, we go back after them and say, brother, sister, you're running the wrong way. Come back. Come, let's run towards Christ together. Or you come along and you're running and you see a brother or sister on the ground, laying prone, dislocated because of sin. You, you bandage them up with the comfort of Christ. You remind them of the promises. In the words of Galatians, you gently restore them. And, you know, you, you put them on your shoulder and you kind of run, end up running with them for a little bit. It's that sense to which we are running this race together. There's a call to communal holiness. And of course, the great enemy in this is individualism. Me and my relationship with God, where people come to church as a consumer experience, not as a communal experience. And of course, the online experience just accentuates this trend where we think of it as me and my relationship with God. So we also just see this manifested in the way we often feel an aversion to speaking into each other's lives. And maybe it's kind of British thing, but it's also just our kind of culture. You do you. And of course, then we we feel very reluctant to to actually help each other to persevere towards this holiness. It's the very opposite of what the writer of Hebrews has in mind. Instead, he says, actually, I would argue the fundamental mark of Christian maturity. One of the fundamental marks is, do you look out for others? Do you look for those who are drifting away, which is, of course, such a present danger? Do you see those who might be discouraged? Some of you are far too individualistic in your faith. I think about, I was, wasn't at the prayer meeting on Friday morning and one of my, one of our sisters messaged me and just said, is everything okay? Because I haven't seen you. I thought, yes, you get it. You get that actually we're a family. And if you've got, you see your brother or sister struggling, you want to reach out and find. And of course, we're family. It's not like we're just individuals. So when someone reaches out to you and says, is everything all right? You don't feel resentful about it. You think, oh, they, actually that's, that's part of what it means to be part of a family. Family checks in with each other. Family appreciates that and responds accordingly. See that word in, in chapter, in verse 15, when it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain. That word see to it is where we get the word overseer. And it's interesting. It's almost like saying everyone is, has an attitude of a leader. Everyone, you know, when we're in a church, you might think it's the leader's responsibility to make sure everyone's running healthily. And of course, that's true to some extent. But actually what it's saying is everybody has that responsibility to see to it that no one runs away. No one fails to obtain the grace of God, that everyone is running. And so I want, to run in exact, I want to urge you to run in exactly the opposite direction to the one that our circumstances have created for us. I want you to pursue spending time with each other one-to-one. I have two or three brothers who I would say, I want to be seeing them every week, every other week. I want to be meeting with them. I need them to be speaking into my life, to be reflecting with me, to be confessing things to them, to praying with them, to share my burdens with them. I think this kind of thing, these kind of one-to-one relationships are essential for your spiritual health. And so it's essential that you keep doing them even at this time. But I think the ultimate question is, do you care about the spiritual health of your brothers and sisters? When you consider these commands, the great prerequisite is that you care about your brothers and sisters running the race. Of course, God is sovereign. Of course, people will make bad decisions. But there's a sense to which, do you actually care whether your brothers and sisters are running the race? And I think you've got to ask God for his heart for them, his, his, his love for the church. He loves his bride. He cares about her and he'll continue to make her beautiful until, her, until she, he comes back to return to be reunited with his bride. And so we need to have that same love for the church, that same desire to make her holy. And so I want to conclude with this thought then, really. First of all, to remember the great promise of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. 
The same writer who urged them to run away from sin, to pursue Christ wholeheartedly, is the same writer who reminded them that Christ has blood has been shed for them, that they have every confidence to come into the presence of God, every confidence to know that every time you walk away from Christ, he wa- he's willing you back, willing you to be washed clean by his blood. And actually that one day this great struggle with sin that we all experience will be over. That verse at the beginning of this passage when he says, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Actually it's a reference to Isaiah. It's a reference to Isaiah when the, when the writer basically reminds them that the struggles, the sin that they see, the wilderness that we live in, so to speak, will one day become a great fruitful land when the Redeemer returns to his people. So say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God, he will save you. Brothers and sisters, we have this struggle now. We must keep striving after holiness. We must keep battling sin. And yet we know a day is coming when Christ will be reunited with his bride, where he will give you new bodies and this struggle with sin will be over. That He will wipe every, every tear away and he will, do, he will destroy de- uh, sin and death once and for all. That we can keep running with the promise that one day this trial will be over. Let me pray. The guys are going to come up and worship. Lead us in worship. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful <laughs> that you, you are our great example of holiness. You are the one who leads us home, who continues to run before us as the great example of godly obedience. And so we want to surrender to you now, <laughs> to come back to you, to recognise that even though our sins are scarlet, you will wash us, you have washed us white as snow. Lord, we want to be your holy people. We want to be your people who love you and are wholehearted in pursuit of you, who are excited about this call to become holy like you, Lord. So we worship you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord. Come and work in us. Come and reshape us. Come and push us into each other that we might become holy and to stir one another up to holy obedience. Amen.